Well, if you didn't know this beforehand, you know now Michael was a jazz piano major in college. Yeah, really shows, doesn't it? Um, some of you came in this morning wondering, hey, where's my revelation notes? I'm looking for them and didn't find them, yeah. Um, we're actually taking a couple weeks away from revelation. We're going to come back to it towards the end of this month, um, especially with all the new people that are coming into New Hope. I wanted to take it easy on you for a couple weeks, okay? So um, what we're going to do for a couple weeks is we're going to look at the nature and character of Christ here on earth before we step back into uh, the second coming. So when we get back in, and, and if you're new to New Hope, you come at a really good time, because when we step back into Revelation, we're going to be looking at the battle of Armageddon, last battle on planet earth, and the second coming of Jesus, and the great white throne judgment. So it's a very cool section of scripture, but before we do that, we're going to look today at the bold actions of Jesus Christ in the way of love. So in the next three weeks, we're going to look at bold action in love, Next week, we're going to look at his bold actions on the earth, and then we're going to look at his bold love in through his mercy, the way he reached out to people. The real, three really, really cool stories. And don't forget next week that you can invite your friends back because that big fall kickoff coming up on the 19th next Sunday. So big deal in the morning service and for the picnic in the afternoon. We'll make sure that the message is appropriate and people can really understand why Jesus came, what his actions were here on planet earth, all right? So before we step into the text this morning, I'm going to ask you to pray with me. We're going to take a minute and just ask God's Spirit to superintend over this study. Heavenly Father, we come before you right now asking that you would guide us and that you would give us understanding. We've lifted up your name in song, and your scripture has been read in Psalm 150, and we also have glorified you through the playing of instruments. Father, we ask right now that as we study your word, that you would take this time and apply it deeply to our heart. We don't understand the inner workings of the Holy Spirit, but you said where we desire to know more of your nature and character, it's your Holy Spirit that reveals it. So we're asking right now, Father, that you would, through the power of your Spirit, give us understanding as we examine this text. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. If you step back far enough in time, probably to about the 1500s or 1600s, you'll find maps that were created of planet Earth, most of them fairly inaccurate. In some cases, they got continents closely drawn. But in every case, you'll find that the ancient cartographers, map makers, did one thing very consistent up until about the 1600s. In territories where they didn't know what existed beyond the boundaries, they would always put one particular symbol. I would like you to look on the screen at this ancient map that comes from about 1550. Notice up at the very top an image of a dragon. Cartographers would always take an opportunity when it was an unexplored region that no one had been to to assume the worst of that region. And so they would put a dragon in that territory and they would say below it, there be dragons here in order to warn people away from going into that territory, especially those with sailing vessels, because they didn't want them to venture into territory. I actually looked at a map of the United States from about 1550 and saw that they had placed a dragon right next to the shoreline of the United States, and you'll never guess what city, right next to Washington, D.C. <laughs> I'm serious, it really did, and it said there'd be dragons here, <laughs> warn people away. Yeah, so now, and when I stepped into the world of aviation, I found that there were similar guidelines. I studied aviation in college, and 
My, my major was in aviation technology, spent a lot of time in airplanes for years, and we were always told about these guidelines that we had to stay within called the envelope. It means the operating limits of an airplane. So the envelope is the categories by which you can safely operate and not exceed the limits of an aircraft. Test pilots in the 1950s were known for doing what's called pushing the outer edge of the envelope. They would go to the very limits of the aircraft's ability. We find that Jesus, in this study we're going to do this morning, is pushing the envelope of what people had accepted to be the safe, known limits. In other words, somebody had drawn a line in time, and Jesus decided to go beyond the limits and push the boundaries to demonstrate to people it is safe beyond these limits. You can do this because I'm doing it to demonstrate to you. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn to John chapter 9. And in John chapter 9, we're going to study about a man who recovered his eyesight. I selected this text before I ever knew that Moffat was going to be reading this morning. So it was really kind of cool the way that it merged together. But in this particular case, this individual had been blind from birth. And Jesus intercepted him. In order to set this up properly, I want you to understand one particular word. We've looked at this word in Revelation, and we've looked at this word if you've grown up in church. The word is agapeo, or you might have heard it as the word agape. Let me show you, for instance, in how this word is used. Revelation 1.5, you'll see it up on the screen. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. So that word love is the word agapeo, or perhaps if you've grown up in church, you've heard it pronounced agape. It has a very specific set of meanings. In the New Testament, in Greek, there's three or four different instances in which the word love is used. The first one is eros, E-R-O-S, and it's where we get the word erotic from. It means sensual love. Another one is philos, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It means an affinity towards each other. For instance, if I like to go fishing and you like to go fishing and we decide to go together, we have an affinity together. So it's philos love that we, we practice at that point. Agape love, agapeo, is far different than that. Look with me up on the screen at the definition for agapeo. To love, meaning of it, embracing especially the judgment and the deliberate assent of the will as a matter of principle. So very simply, philos is a matter of the heart. Agapeo is the matter of the head. So read that in Revelation 1 again. You see that it says, to him who agapeo us and released us. As a matter of fact, every time you read about Jesus and love in the New Testament, it's the word agapeos. It's not philos, it's not eros, it's Jesus intellectually, intelligently, intentionally stepping beyond the boundaries, making a mental cognitive decision to go beyond what is acceptable and draw people in, agapeos. So that word frames where we're going this morning. I'm going to show you how it's used in a verse that's very familiar to you if you grew up in church. Look with me up on the screen at John 3.16. For God so agapeos the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish 
but have eternal life. So it's not God because he has an affinity towards us, philos. It's not God because he has a sensual eros love. It's God, agapeos, an intentional love drawing us in. For God, agapeos, the world. So, you've got that in your mind now. Let's step into this story about this man receiving sight. John chapter 9 and verse 1, and let's see how Jesus pushes the envelope. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? About the only thing that an individual could do who was born blind in the first century was be a beggar. Their family or their friends would walk them out to the gates of the city or to the temple area and set them down and they would spread out a cloth in front of them and individuals throughout the day, hopefully, would throw coins on their cloth. Some of them, if they were really wealthy, had a bowl and people could put coins in their bowl. But in this individual's case, he's blind from birth and because Jesus saw him, do you notice that the disciples saw him? I bet that they had walked by this beggar Many, many times. It's in Jerusalem. And this individual is sitting someplace prominent. But because Jesus saw him, looked upon him, his followers also looked upon him. Except they didn't see him as an object of mercy. They didn't see a guy that's there that needs some kind of love and someone to reach out to. They see him there as someone whom they can have a theological discussion about. Do you notice what they do? They ask Jesus about theology. Who sinned, Jesus? Interesting that they reverted to this question. So, it, you know, it's much easier to discuss someone's needs than it is to act concretely upon their needs and actually do something. You know that that man could not have seen Jesus if he wanted to. He's completely blind. Jesus could have been standing right in front of him and he would not recognize him. And that's the case with each of us. If we were not a part of God, if God had not drawn us in and called us through his Holy Spirit, we would be blind to Jesus' actions also. Scripture confirms that. Those who are apart from God can't really understand the actions of Jesus. Look with me up on the screen, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Paul wrote this, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Who's the God of this world? Satan. The God of this world, the one who works against us, is blinding the minds of the unbelieving so that they can't understand what Jesus is doing. Spiritual blindness cannot recognize truth. Absolutely cannot understand it. In our fallen nature, we are blind to the things of Christ. We cannot understand it. So we're all, every one of us, blind and at the mercy of Jesus to reach out and agapeo and call us in, to love us and touch us. So to Jesus, we're not a theological discussion. We are an object of his attention. He turns and sees us and wants to act upon it. So, but these individuals, these disciples are not. They're not there that far advanced yet. They're still in disciple school. So they're asking this question, who sinned this man or his parents? Uh, what kind of a question is that? Seems really callous and cold, doesn't it? If you understand first century Judaism, you know that even before first century, going back into the times of B.C., that the Pharisees and the rabbis taught that every physical remedy, every physical illness on earth, every complication that you would encounter was the result of sin in your life. It was untrue, but that's what they taught. 
Even, they taught, that babies could sin in the womb. See, if you've got a set of godly parents, this is what they taught, believe it or not. They taught this, that if you've got a set of godly parents and a child is born with an infirmity, there's got to be a reason. So logically, they concluded that they've got a bad embryo, an embryo that sinned in the womb. Bad embryo. Can you imagine that? I can't barely comprehend that, but that's what they taught. Unbelievably, that was their logic, and Jesus needed to help them set that logic aside. This man did not sin. This is not the result of sin. Now, don't dismiss their question too quickly. Who sinned, this man or his parents? Because it is a profound theological question. They're asking, what is the root of trouble in this world? What is the root of this guy's infirmity? Obviously, they weren't thinking far enough back. They weren't thinking back to the fall of man and Adam. And Adam all sinned. When Adam sinned, all sinned, according to Romans 5. But that is a profound question. So verse 3, we move forward. Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am the world, I am the light of the world. Now certainly both parents had sinned at some point in their life. Certainly this son had sinned at some point in his life. But God is saying this, Jesus is saying, this is not the result of sin. He's not blind because if he did something wrong, rather He's a prepared vessel. He's a miracle waiting to happen. Do you know individuals here, do you know that if you're suffering with some infirmity, you are an opportunity for God to glorify himself in your life? Every time you struggle, like Moffat's struggle, is an opportunity for God to be glorified. Individuals who are born with infirmities are just a bigger vessel for God to demonstrate himself. It's kind of exhilarating, isn't it? Because of his status, God's work can be revealed in his life. That's what Jesus is saying. Because he's this way, God gets to be glorified. When we look at the infirmities that we struggle with, this truth you have to take home with you. No matter your greatest difficulty, no matter how intricate, no matter how complicated it is, it can be for the glory of God when you surrender it to him, when you allow him to use it. So consider this moment in time. Think about this instance that God foreknew that this beggar in the first century would be sitting by the gate and would cause the star maker to walk past him and turn and see him. Our God is in control of everything. And he foreknew that Jesus would walk in front of this beggar and engage him in agape, agape, agapeo love. It's an extraordinary truth. So Jesus' response is, I must work the works of him that sent me. What's he saying here? Guys, there's no time for a theological discussion. It's time to get to work, to do the work of the kingdom. Let's get it done. So now watch how he pushes the envelope. Verse 6. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes. I read this verse over and over and over again. And each time it came back to me. 
Not since the creation of the world had the Creator gathered dirt together and formed new creation, taking the soil of the earth and using it to create eyes for this individual who was blind but now will see. So this one, this one who created mankind, who shaped the earth, the word through whom everything was spoken, is now gathering dirt together. Only the creator could do this. What majesty, church. What power. What agapeos. That he would gather the dust of the earth one more time and place it on the individual's eyes. Verse 7, he says to them, and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. One thing I want you to bank away in your mind before we move forward, just hold it in a holding place on the shelf for a minute. There were 39 ways in which you could break Shabbat, meaning the Sabbath, in which you could break the Sabbath and create an, create an illegal offense by doing something related to building One of those was making clay. Now just bank that away. We're going to come back to that in a minute. So Jesus sends this individual to the pool of Siloam. What is really significant about that? It's one of the most archaeologically authenticated sites on the face of the earth. Historians know that the pool that we have today, we call Siloam, is actually the pool that existed in the time of Jesus. I'm going to show you an image of it up on the screen. The pool of Siloam, if you were to go there today, still looks like that at the end of what's known as Hezekiah's Tunnel. Hezekiah was a king who built an aqueduct coming from the Temple Hill, running all the way down under the city of Jerusalem and emptying into this pool called the Pool of Siloam. Here's what's really significant about this. You remember if you've grown up in church hearing the story about Jesus standing up in the temple courtyard at a particular moment during the Feast of the Tabernacles and he said one particular verse if any man thirst let him come to me remember him yelling that out really loud church okay there was a moment when Jesus did that because of a specific instance at this particular pool that you see in front of you individuals from the temple the priest would take vessels they would go to the pool scoop up buckets full of water and carry it back up the steps to the temple and at a particular moment during the feast of the tabernacles they would dump water out celebrating what God had done for Moses and the children of Israel when he provided water in the desert for them. And they would celebrate and scream and shout. But before they could do that, Jesus stood up as they're dumping the water out and he said, if any man's thirsty, let him come to me. I am the true water. So everybody understood the significance of this pool of Siloam. It had huge meaning to the Israelites. And that's where Jesus sends this individual to. Now, remarkably, the water that comes from the Pool of Siloam started up on the Temple Hill. Anything associated with the Temple is associated as coming from God. So they thought of it as the water from God flowing through Hezekiah's tunnel and ending up in the Pool of Siloam, meaning sent. That's what your scriptures say. Sent from God. So catch this. The Temple Hill was a place where God was represented. Siloam represents where it's received. Jesus sends this one to get the water sent by God that will cleanse your eyes. He has to go to the water of life. That's what Jesus said. If anybody's thirsty, come to me. He has to go to the one who is the source of the water of life. 
So you see the beautiful symbology going on there, and Jesus is specifically sending him here for this reason. And I've got this mental image in my mind of this blind guy, I don't know how old he is, with mud smeared on his face and caked on his eyes, and he's trying to make his way through the streets of Jerusalem to find this pool of Siloam. People must have thought he was quite a sight, and I'm sure he was being escorted by someone, but Jesus said, do it, so he did it. So the rest of verse 7 says, so he went away and washed and came back seeing. Now, I know there's lots of physicians in our congregation who would love to know how in the world did that happen? How did Jesus connect the neurons and make the nerve endings? There's like a million of them for each eyeball. How in the world did he cause all those things to fire and this new creation emerges seeing eyes? I have no idea. It's the simplicity of Scripture. He merely says he came back seeing What's the first thing he saw? Pool of water, probably. He's got the water splashing in his face and he's looking in the pool of Siloam for the first time in his life. He sees the birds that he'd been hearing. The sun that he felt on his face, he can see the rise of it. Children laughing, he knows what those kids look like. All the conversation in the street, he understands now what dust is. The dust that caked on his face, he can actually see it. Scripture says he comes back seeing. And what did he do? Apparently, he came home. That's where I'd go. He did the first thing that came to his mind. He came back seeing to see the people that he loved. For the God who made the universe church to create a couple of seeing eyes is nothing. He's the star breather. So this individual, he went, he washed, and he sees. And it's a small thing for the God who stood on the edge of heaven and breathed out stars to create a couple of seeing eyes for this individual. So verse 8, the neighbors are shocked. Look with me on the screen. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, how then were your eyes opened? The word that's used there for open in Greek literally is saying, how then were your eyes released? How were they set free if you were the same person? What's he doing running around? How in the world does he do that? How is he not stumbling? This can't be the same guy. They're talking about him like he's in the third person, that he's not even there. And he's saying, I'm the one, it's me. Can you imagine being able to be the one to say that? Yeah, it's me, I'm really him. This work that God has done in his life, and he's willing to yell it. I'm the one. I'm trying to convince you. So verse 11, he answers them. The man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed, and I received sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. This is a really good point to ask you a question. Is your world around you perplexed by your relationship with God to the point where they say, you can't be the same person? Is God's work so evident in your life that people say, yeah, that's not really, that's not you. That's not like you. And you respond, yeah, you're right. God's at work in my life. Or is Jesus so hidden that no one knows the difference. No one notices that he's doing anything because you've concealed him. 
Verse 14, now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. You noticed, didn't you, that it's the Sabbath day when Jesus did this. And you think back to what I told you earlier about the 39 ways to break the Sabbath. This is one of the things that he was not supposed to do. So why in the world did they take this man to the Pharisees unless the neighbors were already told if you see something in the way of breaking the Sabbath and Jesus is associated with it, you will report it. So they turn this individual in to the Pharisees and the interrogation begins. How did you receive your sight? They're not marveling at the magnificence of this miracle. They're beginning an interrogation. They're trying to understand in a courtroom process what in the world is going on. What is the manner of this? 39 ways you can break the Sabbath in the way of building, gathering dirt together and making clay is one of them. The other one that Jesus broke here, there's two that he broke. You were not to administer any type of medicinal treatment on the Sabbath unless someone's life was at stake. So Jesus did two things. He first took the clay and he applied it to the guy's eyes and there's no hiding that. He made clay and he took part in something that was forbidden, medical treatment. Jesus is pushing the envelope. Somebody at some point in time had made up all these rules and Jesus as God saying, those rules don't apply. Those are not my rules. Those are man's rules. God's rules are that we are agapeos, that we reach out in love. God created the Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath. That's what Jesus said. So he's pushing the envelope and he's breaking with the laws that man had created. Man had imposed things regarding how God was to be worshipped instead of following the word of God. Verse 16, Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God, meaning they're speaking of Jesus, because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said to the blind man again, What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. These individuals apparently have attempted to divine what the God of the universe could do, what he can do and what he cannot do. And through their absolutely absurd traditions and their absurd customs, they're declaring what God will do and what God won't do. And they've made this false envelope that God is contained within. This is a crisis with profound implications for them. And that's why it says there was a division among them. Anytime that you do what you believe God has called you to do, it will cause division. Individuals watching, especially those who are spiritually blind, will look upon your actions and say, What are you doing? It doesn't fit within the rules. If God has called you to do it, it will cause division. And here's a hint for you. Do it anyways. 
If God's called you to do it, do it. If God has called you not to do it, don't do it. And we're not talking about breaking all the rules. We're talking about understanding what God's rules are in a much clearer way. So the opposite effects are confirmation of what God said. God did one thing that was amazing. Everybody who understood God's action are praising him. People who don't understand God's action are questioning him. And therefore, Scripture is once again validated when God said, my ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. And it's a mystery to those who are spiritually blind. So they asked the question of the guy, what do you say about him? And he said, he is a prophet. Does it not seem remarkable to you that the quote-unquote religious leaders of that era could not understand who Jesus was? That their eyes were so blind they could not comprehend when they see God right in front of them? Jesus, in the first week of his ministry, declared that he would cause blind people to see. Look with me up on the screen. Luke 4.17. Jesus is in the synagogue The scroll of Isaiah is handed to him, and he begins to read. This is what it says. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. And this is what he read from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. Jesus went on to say, I tell you the truth in your hearing, today this prophecy has been fulfilled. And yet they missed it. They totally could not understand. The very fact that they studied this miracle in such detail is confirmation. Jesus really healed the guy. Now they're just trying to figure it out. So now what they do is turn the tables and they take the position, no miracle occurred. Absolutely not. This man has had sight all his life. Look with me at the next verse, verse 18. Then the Jews did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? Now let me read it to you the way they said it. Is this your son whom you say was born blind? Then how now does he see? They're questioning the fact that this man was declared to be born blind from birth. Yeah, we put him out there every day to beg just to fool everybody. We put him out on the streets just to convince people one day in the chance that maybe the rabbi would walk by and heal him. No, he was born blind. And the Pharisees are now angry they're ratcheting up and they will not be tampered with and so they ask the parents to give an answer for this and the envelope is pushed a little bit further look what happens with me in verse 20 his parents asked them his parents answered them and said we know that this is our son and that he was born blind But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. 
His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So the identification is complete. They have authenticated confirmation, he is our son. He was born blind, but it's an inexplicable phenomenon. We have no understanding. Only what he's told us is what we know. He stumbled out the door in the morning, made his way to the place where he begs, and he came back exuberant. How this happened? Asked him. This family is so poor. Understand this. They are so poor that every day they had to allow their son to go out and beg to survive. Being put out of the synagogue was unimaginable to them. To go to the place where they've got this son who's crippled for life is hard enough. But to the place where they would be unsynagogued, shamata, is unimaginable. Shamata was to be unsynagogued, and it took place in three forms. The first form, and it's not practiced today, but the first form of shamata was that someone would be removed from religious life in the Jewish community for seven days. And it was announced to the people of the village or the city, in this case Jerusalem, if they knew them, that for seven days, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, you may not enter back into fellowship with this family, your church, the synagogue. The second form was much more severe. The second form also involved the putting out for seven days plus 23. And at the beginning of it, someone from the temple would show up with a trumpet and blast a trumpet and pronounce curses on the family, shunning them publicly. If an individual died during that 30 days, they did not even get a funeral from the priest of the temple. They threw the body into the dump. The fourth or the third kind was called the karem. The karem was the worst. And the karem was being banned for life. Now, in this community, you understand that to be part of the synagogue was your livelihood. It's how your family functioned. It means you were as good as dead if you were shut out from the synagogue. So these people are being threatened, and that's why they're not going to incur responsibility for their son's opinions about Jesus. They knew perfectly well who did the healing. Their son had already told the whole neighborhood. They understood who did it, but they're personally not going to take responsibility for his opinions. They will not implicate themselves in this hearing. So move with me into verse 24. So a second time, notice the jury's ratcheting it up now. A second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Do you notice that they're no longer asking for any of the details of the healing? They're no longer saying, how did this happen? They're now wanting him to implicate Jesus. This phrase, give glory to God, is very similar to what we use in our courtrooms today. If you've been to a courtroom or perhaps you've watched it on television, an individual is told that they need to put their left hand on the Bible, raise their right hand in the air, and say, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? This claim here, give glory to God, is the exact same phrase that has its roots in the Old Testament. 
You see it when a man named Achan actually took things from the people of Israel, stole them, and Joshua confronted him. Look with me on the screen at Joshua 7.19. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. See, the Pharisees have already arrived at their conclusion. They already believe that Jesus is a sinner. All they want this man to do is admit that their conclusions are true, and you will not be unsynagogued. But he can't do that. They're saying, we know this man is a sinner. They're warning the witness. You better cooperate with us. Years of begging, years of bumping in the dark, years of having to read through a magnifying glass just to see a little sentence of God's holy word had created a stout spirit in this individual. One who was so determined that their simple little threats didn't scare him. He knew that Jesus had touched him. He had experienced the touch of the master in his life. He knew what agapeos was because firsthand it came into his life and he's not afraid to say it. Look with me at verse 25. He then answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Sounds like a song, doesn't it? Yeah, that's where it came from. That's where amazing grace came from. Though I was blind, now I see. Do you notice that he did not debate with them? He didn't argue with them what was beyond his knowledge or his experience. He merely confirmed, one thing I know. I could see. I was blind. I was blind from birth. And I see. And this one Jesus did this. Ironically, he uses their own words right against them. Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. I can't tell you. One thing I know inconvincibly, I was blind and now I see. What are you going to do with it? The simple, consistent testimony triumphs every time. What God has done in your life, put into the simplest form possible, every single time you share it, it triumphs over all the world of logic. Even though you can't understand how in the world did the creator of the universe reconnect those nerve endings and give him eyesight. He doesn't need to know. He just says, I was blind, but now I see. I tell you the truth, church. If we will reflect this kind of risky love, you will not be able to hold back the floodgates of people who want to be part of New Hope Church. They will be amazed and hungry for this kind of truth that God will reach out to them in agapeo love and draw us in. There's a reason this church is growing rapidly and it's because this is a loving congregation. We have that reputation in the Lansing community doing things that other churches of our size don't do. It's risky when you're only two to three years old to go out and support missionaries the way we do, to support local organizations the way that we do. It's agapeo love, going beyond our comfort zone and doing the things that we know that God has called us to do. So you find Jesus now in the end of this story, and I'm not going to give you the whole thing, 
in the end of this story, Jesus talking face to face with this man who now can see him. You can later today yourself read the rest of the story. There's a big fight that breaks out. Well, we're going to skip all the way down into verse 35 of chapter 9. It's not going to be on the screen, so I'm just going to read it to you. If you have your Bibles, you can read along. Verse 35 says this, Jesus heard that they had put him out, meaning they unsynagogued him. They had put him out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. He proscuneoed him. He went down to his face. Jesus said, the one that you can see. He could not have said that to him the day before, could he? The one that you see is the one who is the Son of Man. The one whom you're talking to, it's me. And this individual recognized it. Jesus had pushed beyond the envelope. Agapeo, outside the world of what was safe to do what we are supposed to be doing ourselves. Do you know that before Jesus was crucified, before the resurrection, he left a new commandment for you? Beyond all the other things that God has already told us to do, Jesus said, I'm going to give you a new commandment. Today, you're going to get to read that with me. So if you would stand up right where you're at, this is how we're going to end today. Now this word, agapeo, I have inserted into this verse in place of the word love. So I'd like you to read it out loud along with me. It comes from John chapter 13, and this is the new commandment. So let's read it together. A new commandment I give to you, that you agapeo one another, even as I have agapeo you, that you also agapeo one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have agapeo for one another. You do not sound like you believe it, okay? Let's work on this word. I know it's 1217 and you're reaching for your car keys. Put them back, okay? Let's say the word agapeo together. Agapeo. Okay, say it like you mean it. Agapeo. Let's read this verse the way that Jesus intended. So see it on the screen again, John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you agapeo one another, even as I have agapeo you, that you also agapeo one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have agapeo for one another." Do you think it was important to Jesus? Four times in one paragraph. Reach beyond the envelope. Reach beyond the envelope. Agapeo, go into the intentional kind of love. Jesus raised the value of our church being known as an agapeo group of people. Next week, you get the opportunity to reach beyond your world and invite friends to come and experience New Hope when we have this fall kickoff next Sunday. It's a one chance for you to do it this fall. Big celebration. They'll have fun, lots of great music. Give it a shot. Go beyond the envelope and ask people to be part of this truth. Let's pray together.
Father, we come and stand before you right now, myself included, as individuals who want to take this truth and remember it as well on Thursday as we do on Sunday. But because of the press of the world and things that go on around us, it is so easy to forget. So, Father, I ask that you would use the work of the Spirit in our life, every single individual in this auditorium, to remember what it meant for you to step outside the safety zone, to go into a world that was unfamiliar to most people and demonstrate truth that we need to love one another in the same way that you did. Father, I ask that you make this truth very real for us, that you are able to accomplish this in our life. Your word says to you that you are able to do far more exceedingly and abundantly above all that we ask or think. So to you be the glory, Father, in this church and in Christ Jesus for all generations to come. Amen and amen. Have a great week, church.